Welcome to The Christian Atheist, where faith and reason fuse in the Incarnation. Episode 8, The Denouement. Shortly after my wife's death in February 2019, I was in church listening to a sermon on the book of Joshua. My mind wandered to a Socratic principle familiar to my listeners. If you want to know what someone truly believes, watch what they do. Don't listen to what they say. At that moment, I applied this principle to myself. Was I acting like an atheist? I said that I was, repeatedly. I'd told my students that for years. My colleagues, my family and friends, the pastor and the parishioners. I declared it with great confidence. Who could possibly know better than I did what I believed? Yet, here I was, in church, listening to a sermon. I was, I told myself, my own kind of atheist. I was in church because I'd promised my wife I would raise our daughter in the church. I listened to the sermon because I took every opportunity to expand my understanding of things. If I believed God did not exist, though, wouldn't that belief be reflected in some way in my conduct? I had been celibate for more years than I cared to consider. Why? It wasn't from a lack of desire. I had endured years of struggle, pain, frustration. Why hadn't I adopted some sort of ethical egoism and just done my own thing? Why did I choose to live as I did? The answer came quickly. I was living as if God existed, as Peterson said, echoing Immanuel Kant. But if I was living that way, then I was not an atheist, no matter what I said or thought that I believed. I almost leapt up from the pew. But did I believe in God? The answer came quickly, unequivocally, from my rational core. No, I did not. Yet if I could no longer honestly declare myself an atheist, where did I stand? Years ago, when I flipped the switch to atheism, I thought of my agnosticism as a wood between the worlds, as in C.S. Lewis's Magician's Nephew. I now return to that place of indecision, not by choice, but through self-confrontation, truth above all. I defaulted to the one intellectually unassailable position on God's existence, that of Socratic ignorance, of agnosticism. T.S. Eliot said, the way forward is the way back. The week following my proposal of marriage to Jenny at Overlook Pool, as related in the last episode of The Christian Atheist, my daughter and I were slated to spend with my niece, Bronwyn, and her family camping in the Adirondacks. It was a highlight of our year. This year, though, would be more complex, special. Jenny and I were connected, and that was my fault. I had opened the dragon's lair, and it was time to put on the knight's armor and begin the fight. But... What was the fight? In the weeks and months following my reversion to agnosticism, I found no path to belief in God. Retreating from a negative belief system that claimed far more than it could justify, atheism, left me no further, no closer, to a positive faith claim of equal extent, 
one for which I allowed no evidence. Jenny needed a Christian, and that I could never be. My first resolve, thus, was to justify an unequally yoked marriage. I marshaled all my capacities to produce an unassailable argument, both for Jenny and anyone else who might object to our union. Never had my critical faculties been so focused on the production of what I knew to be a sophistical enterprise. Our texting became overwhelming. We had suppressed passion. Now it poured forth in an unending stream, powerful and unrelenting. Jenny was as lost, or found, as was I, and this love, born as it was from the inside out, was the most powerful connective force I've ever felt in my life. It remains so to this day. My niece, Bronwyn, and her husband, Bill, were the two people in all the world best suited to what came next. Both of them had come from broken marriages, from partners who left them. I deeply admired them, as they had accomplished the impossible, successfully blending two families with a total of seven kids and remaining truly in love with one another, blessing all that surrounded them. That was what I wanted, and what Jenny wanted. Also, Bronwyn and Bill were Christians, robust, strong, salt of the earth, engaged in the grid of life, believers. Bronwyn knew and understood me like few others, had been concerned for my spiritual welfare for years. She had, in fact, promised my mother that she would, quote, keep working on me. Here and now, God's plan was converging. Bronwyn knew immediately that I was in a turmoil. My love for Jenny poured from me, along with the seriousness of my quandary. For Bron and Bill, the issue was simple. I was my own worst enemy. My step back from atheism to agnosticism was a move in the right direction, but didn't go far enough. They didn't understand, I thought, that turning back to theism was not possible for me. Once or twice a day, I had enough signal to get a text out to Jenny. A pic of our campsite and the setting sun over the lake, words of love and encouragement, pain at being apart, our ongoing struggle to sort out our situation. Our passionate discussions, word by word, will remain with me forever. To be loved by someone in this manner was unique, powerful, life-transforming, and life-giving. I saw the world anew, full of wonder, magic, and purpose. I wanted to be what she needed, to love her as she deserved to be loved. I saw myself through her eyes in a wholly new light. My offering, like Cain's, was not acceptable. And I knew that, even as I offered it. I could not, however, simply decide to reverse a quarter century of atheism without destroying the narrative of my life. But it was more than that. Truth above all, and at all costs. I could not violate that and remain myself, nor be worthy of her love. Jenny's presence had restored to me the ideal that fifty years of life had murdered. I had made peace with that murder, slowly, 
inexorably. Life, I came to believe, is a process of disillusionment. Many years before, my brother Ned had given me a painting of a woman looking out to sea. For you, he said. She was, I knew, an impossible ideal. But Jenny was, is, that woman. She is my ideal, my more than ideal, better than ideal, because she is also real. Her feet touch the same earth as mine. She breathes the same air. In being real, the ideal becomes more, fulfilling a promise, becoming a timeless gift. For this gift I have no words, only an ongoing struggle to express the inexpressible. As Eliot said, every attempt is a wholly new start and a different kind of failure. Each venture is a new beginning, a raid on the inarticulate with shabby equipment always deteriorating in the general mess of imprecision of feeling, undisciplined squads of emotion. I know Jenny as ideal through her reality, and her reality as ideal. I love her with a love that is more than love, as Poe said. Language, the vehicle of human reason, reflects an inadequacy of expression in its objective reality, points beyond itself to what it cannot touch. I do not claim that Jenny is perfect, but I do claim that she is perfect for me. Veritable evidence that reality and the ideal do coincide, that the ideal can be real. Jenny pointed me back to transcendence. Bronwyn kept revolving our conversation around a central theme. Who was I, really? Who had I always been? What are the patterns of my life? I watched Braun and Bill with their kids. The love, the commitment to Christ that wasn't ostentatious, but settled in the base of their beings. They lived faith and love for God, for each other, for family. They accepted and welcomed me with all my complexity, sought to love and help me. They enjoyed our company, and I wasn't just a subject for conversion. They heard my love for Jenny, sympathized with my agony, and emphasized their own lives, joys, struggles, and love for God. Braun kept pointing me to one question, not what I believed, but how I lived. Over and over again, I was forced to face that I lived my life as if God existed, no matter what I claimed, whether atheist or agnostic, and not as if he did not. Jordan Peterson, Kant, Socrates. I was not being logical or honest with myself. Sartre's ontological analysis, too, played in my mind. As C.S. Lewis said, All the books were beginning to turn against me. Indeed, I must have been as blind as a bat not to have seen, long before, the ludicrous contradiction between my theory of life and my actual experiences. From Surprised by Joy I had believed in atheism for 25 years, 
approximately the same amount of time I had been Christian. Now the cowardice of agnosticism loomed large again before me. Could I again turn my life upside down and choose belief in God? Wouldn't I look the fool? Wouldn't everyone question my motives? Was I even sure of my motives? Was I here, now, only because I wanted Jenny? That would be dishonest, and worse, a betrayal of my pearl of great price, to whom I now wished to offer my whole being in purity and truth. Truth above all, and at all costs, kept throbbing in my mind. Her eyes, her soul, my looking-glass, kept reflecting my image with increasing clarity in spite of my own distortions. While the church prayed for my salvation, Jenny knew better. She had gently, quietly told them and me her thoughts on this. What did it matter, though, if God never relinquishes those who once believe, if I no longer believed in God? What, though, does faith mean? That was again an open question for me, remember? I began to ask myself if all my doubts and uncertainties concerning God's existence were consistent with faith in God. Metaphysical explanation had convinced me that it was more rational to be atheist. But was it? Metaphysics is itself, as Sartre made clear, the realm of faith. Had my atheism consisted of faith reinforcing itself? Of course it had. Religious faith does the same. This was one of the realizations that caused me to abandon theism. The two-edged sword of truth was now cutting both ways. My doubts, then, concerning God's existence were not only consistent with faith in God, as Kant said, but part of the very structure of faith itself. Now, was it true, or would a renewed faith in God be a return to deception, to bad faith? This became my stumbling block. What did my actions, my life, tell me? The clear story here was that I believed in God. This faith, Kant told me, was not irrational at all, but another tool in the human toolbox for understanding and living in a reality that infinitely transcends our limitations. Sartre's message was that I encountered God at the ontological level as paradox. As I reviewed my life in the clear air of the Adirondack Mountains, I faced my self-deception, seeing God's hand writing my narrative, leading me here, now. I had privileged objective reasoning and evidence for so long that my subjective responses were profoundly dubious to me. Yet there was a thread running through all my story, a deep understanding that life is a better index of truth than bare intellect. When push came to shove in my life, I deferred to Christ. He was my ideal, my archetype, my aim. At some level, I had always loved Jesus, even as an atheist, even as, like Peter or Judas, I denied him in the most violent of terms. 
Pilate's famous question, what is truth, is answered, as I came to understand, not in an abstract set of principles, but in a person. Jesus said, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. I had, at one level or another, followed Jesus as the way all my life. Now I needed to see him as the truth. And here I was stuck. Not on proof, for I knew the arguments for God, knew the historical controversies over the historicity of the Bible narrative, but I had dismissed the reality of the supernatural. There was ample reason to believe in a transcendent reality, and ample reason not to, depending upon which narrative was favored, which foundational choice was made. Both sides were rational. Hearing more arguments for God's existence was useless. I did not need more reason or evidence to believe. I lacked what exactly? Truth? So again, what is truth? We left the Adirondacks on July 20th. I could again text Jenny freely. Even in her absence, she had reflected my image to me over the last week with an intensity I'd never before experienced. Her hearth fires burned low, were warming, and beckoned to me with joy unspeakable. As I drove home, a battle raged within me. My fire-breathing foe had burned me deeply, nearly fatally, but strength from outside me flowed in. Those hearth fires needed my tending. The hedges of my self-confinement were aflame as I battled the dragon of chaos. The two-edged sword of truth, landing blow after blow upon my foe, also cut from me with surgical precision. Years of accretions, insecurities, arrogancies. My death fright, my appearance of foolishness at a total life transformation from atheist back to Christian, flamed away in this engagement. If death is the cost of life, I will gladly pay it. Better to die in battle, in action, and not of apathy. One hurdle only remained, the battle for truth. And for truth, I would gladly play the fool in my own eyes, and that of everyone else. The line of conflict, at last, was clear. The last battle raged as we arrived home. Jordan Peterson had sketched what was, for me, a reminder of principles I thought I believed and understood. Truth cannot be divorced from human purpose in life. Sartre and other existentialists made this point, too. Whatever truth was, then, it had to have two separate poles. It had to be human, intimately connected to life, purpose, and meaning. And it had to be something we discovered that was independent of us, something real, extra-human, objective, something divine. The great I am. This is the paradox of truth. Like Odysseus, I had traveled to war only to discover myself in the struggle for and the return to my home, my looking glass. The last battle resolved as a final puzzle piece snapping into place. Again the answer lay in paradox, the incarnation. Truth 
in both its aspects is found in Jesus the Christ. Fully God, fully human. A paradox that centered my mind, my world, my understanding. He combined in himself all the fullness of the Godhead, bodily, and yet was a human being, like me. I did not understand. I could not understand. But now I saw this lack of understanding as the result of finite existence, my limited being and reason in the face of God's totality. Finitude, recognized as limit, points beyond itself to the infinity of God. Atheism had been my attempt to flee what I understood at the level of ontology, not an honest attempt to deal with it. I had lived in bad faith for 25 years. Truth must both be discovered and created. Truth is human and divine. I had sought truth to demystify life, to nail it down, take its measure. Now I came to understand that ambiguity, mystery, and the infinite complexity that was beyond my finite reason were not problems in the search for truth, but signals that I, by my very nature, stand ignorant and naive in the face of infinite complexity, in the face of God, further up and further in. Truth is an infinite exploration of the divine, not a shutting down to what is known, as knowledge itself is merely a departure from ignorance to a greater understanding of that ignorance. In my flight from foolishness, I had become the greatest of fools, believing myself to be wise. This is the perennial trap of reason. I had left my Christian faith behind as foolishness in my pursuit of wisdom. But that journey, that way in pursuit of truth, brought me back to he whom I thought I had left behind, but who had traveled every step by my side. Jenny, the incarnation of my ideal, was God's shadow of the incarnation, the way to truth. My passage through the looking glass was completed July 23, 2019, as I once again conceded, in C.S. Lewis's words, that God was God. In my end was my beginning. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. T.S. Eliot from Four Quartets. The way forward for me, truly, was the way back. I am not the same Christian who left the faith all those years ago. The faith I returned to is less settled, more complex and nuanced, less tortured, more imbued with uncertainty, ambiguity, paradox, it is more robust, stronger now, but no longer simple. It remains foolishness for those who do not believe. I will be, happily now, a fool for Christ. So bring on the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, the honest doubts and the malicious attacks. This is the hill 
on which I die. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Jenny and I were resurrected to a new Eden in marriage on August 24, 2019. To say that I love her seems inadequate. That I adore her falls short of my shallowest feelings. She is truly my pearl of great price, for which I sold everything, and in selling found again the greatest prize of my life. She stands as the imago dei that revealed to me the union of God and man in Jesus Christ. May I love her as Christ loves the church and gave himself for her. I enthusiastically lay my life at her feet as a shadow of that greater offering in Christ. It is paradox that drove me away from God in search of truth. It was the paradox of the Incarnation that led me back and that drives me forward into God's arms, His infinite truth and love beyond measure. Jenny was, and is, my looking-glass, and through her I found Christ again. Together, Christ is our Lord and our highest meaning. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I am a Christian, with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass, and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening, and remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian. <laughs>